on Textbooked. One sort of persistent theme through the first century and a half of American history was profound efforts to disarm African Americans in particular for fear that they might rise up and overthrow a racist apartheid system that existed in America, either under the name of slavery, or under the name of Jim Crow, or under the name of redlining. And so there is this long, unfortunate way in which race and racism have sort of flowed through America's history of gun safety laws. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Ellie Kerver-Horner. And you're listening to Untextbook. Do guns keep us safe? Well, that depends on who you ask. That's right. For pro-gun advocates, the answer would be a resounding yes. For those advocating for gun control, not so much. So who's right? Great question. For many years, the Supreme Court has consistently recognized that the Second Amendment is compatible with strong firearm regulations. But this year alone, America has entered a record-breaking amount of mass shootings, begging the question, what is the disconnect between national policy and national practice? That's actually a question that I would love to explore. I was in high school when the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School happened. It was really traumatizing for my classmates and I to witness so many people our age die from gun violence. That trauma quickly turned into movement when I joined Students Demand Action, also known as SDA, a youth-led gun control advocacy organization. You grew up in the Midwest, right? What was it like being a part of an org like SDA there? Honestly, it was tough. There was a lot of tension around gun laws. And even though SDA was nonpartisan, we were deemed too political or controversial. It was challenging to gain support. Around the same time, I also began to witness firsthand how deeply divided the United States was over the Second Amendment. Over the years, this divide has had far-reaching influence, with stakeholders on each side struggling to reach common ground. It's raised questions about what matters most, guns or the citizens with the right to bear them. On this episode of Untextbook, Ellie interviews Professor Adam Winkler, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. The book argues that guns, not abortion, race, or religion, are at the heart of America's cultural divide. While digging into the history of guns in America, Second Amendment rights, and the stakeholders on both sides of the fight, Ellie discovers some surprising shifts, many of which we'll unpack today. Hello, Professor Winkler. Hi. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. That's very good to hear. Thank you so much for joining us today on Untextbooked. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we are going to be primarily discussing the divide in the United States around the Second Amendment. Well, terrific. I'm happy to be here. It is a big divide in America. It's one of these issues that really separates red states and blue states, or sometimes red states and blue cities. But we have very, very profound disagreements on issues like 
LGBT rights, abortion, but guns really seems to bring out the most extreme in many Americans. Yes, yes. And I think that really takes us into the beginning of our conversation. I want to start off with laying out some context. So your book, Gunfight, is structured around the landmark Supreme Court case, District of Columbia v. Heller. And what I'm wondering is, what did this case decide? And can you tell us why this ruling was so critical and important? Yeah, well, you know, the Second Amendment's been part of the Constitution since the founding era. It was one of the original amendments to the proposed Constitution that was ratified The amendments were ratified in 1791 and has been part of our Constitution ever since. But it wasn't until 2008 that the Supreme Court issued an authoritative interpretation of the Second Amendment and said that the Second Amendment clearly protects an individual right to have guns for personal protection. That case was called D.C. versus Heller. And it's clearly a big landmark case written by Justice Antonin Scalia. It takes a very sort of originalist, historical-based approach to constitutional interpretation and says that the founders were intending to protect an individual's right to have arms for personal protection. That changed the law in significant ways and has led to really 14 years since of significant litigation over the scope of the Second Amendment. Because while you may have a right to bear arms, gun safety laws and gun control, if you will, have been part of American history as much as the six-shooter and the Second Amendment. So why did you, I mean, you kind of touched on this because of its importance, but why did you choose to focus gunfight on this specific case? Well, I wrote this book for really two reasons. The first is that the story of the lawsuit, the Heller case, that frames the book was just such a good dramatic story. It was a trio of libertarian lawyers led by a young, relatively inexperienced attorney fighting to bring a Second Amendment case to the Supreme Court for the first time in decades. And the NRA, the nation's leading gun advocacy organization, was paradoxically trying to stop them at every single turn. And so the case had this inherent drama And in addition, when I was doing my research into the history of gun safety laws and the history of gun control, I uncovered so many remarkable discoveries about America's hidden history of guns. And and I wanted to share them. Things like that the KKK began with gun control, one of its top agenda items, that the Black Panthers influenced the modern gun rights movement, that the Wild West had some of the strictest gun laws in the nation, and that the NRA itself used to promote gun control laws, the same laws that the organization now fights to repeal in the name of the Second Amendment. And so Gunfight was, for me, a vehicle to share not only the story of the Heller case, but these revealing historical discoveries about how we've tried to balance gun rights and gun safety over the course of American history. I actually think that you just touched on some of the interactions between gun control and also just questions of the Second Amendment with the KKK and with the Black Panthers, which takes me into a section that I wanted to talk about today, which is just sort of reckoning with the history of gun control in the United States. I think that a lot of times, you know, younger generations, my generation specifically, I mean, I'm 19, and I think a lot of the people around me don't always understand some of the context that really comes into discussing gun control legislation. I mean, support for gun control in the U.S. has often held a pattern of dangerous parallels with racist efforts to suppress populations of color, like the Mulford Act in the 1960s in California. 
Can you please tell us a little bit about this history? Well, certainly. First of all, it's important to recognize that history is important in this area, not just as a matter of study, but in terms of constitutional law. The Supreme Court has made it clear that they're going to interpret the Second Amendment in light of historical patterns and historical trends, and that for a gun law to be constitutionally permissible today, it has to have some historical precedent. So that makes the inquiry and detailing of the history of gun safety laws vitally important, not just to expand our knowledge, because it's going to shape what kinds of laws are constitutionally permissible today. And certainly one of the most unfortunate things about the history of gun laws in America is how race and racism have shaped gun laws. That, you know, for one of the ways in which you keep a minority population oppressed and second class is to deny them the tools that can help them attain full citizenship. So for people who were enslaved, often they were denied literacy because literacy could help them reason, communicate, organize, and perhaps overthrow the slave system. And the same thing with regards to guns. One sort of persistent theme through the first, I don't know, century and a half of American history was profound efforts to disarm African Americans in particular for fear that they might rise up and overthrow a racist apartheid system that existed in America, either under the name of slavery, under under the name of Jim Crow, or under the name of redlining. And so there is this long, unfortunate way in which race and racism have sort of flowed through America's history of gun safety laws. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible for gun control advocates to truly reckon with this history while still pushing for further legislation? Is there a way that we can acknowledge it while still moving forward with it? Absolutely. Look, just because race and racism have been abused by lawmakers in the past doesn't mean there's not a proper place for regulation. Look, we had marriage laws in this country that were racially discriminatory, barring people from different races from getting married. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have any laws regulating marriage today. We've had property laws that were profoundly racist, voting laws that were profoundly racist. Does that mean we shouldn't have any laws regulating property rights or any laws regulating voting? No, I think what it means is is that when lawmakers do regulate in this space, they should be cognizant of race and potential disparate impact from their laws. While I think very rare is the gun safety legislation policy today based in race or racism, as evidenced by the fact that it's supported most heartily by racial minority groups and elected officials who represent uh, racial minority groups. But we could do more to recognize how the gun reforms that we adopt have a disparate impact. When we do things like ban high-capacity magazines, I think it's a good idea in theory. In practice, however, uh, California has banned high-capacity magazines and no one's really given them up, so people still own them. So who's going to get arrested for having one? Well, only someone who is caught with one because they're being investigated or searched, their home is being searched. And we know because of predictable patterns of over-policing in minority communities that that's going to affect minorities the most. So although the law banning high-capacity magazines isn't racist and isn't intended to be racist or intended to be recreating or maintaining racial hierarchies, 
it may nonetheless do that, in fact. Next, we're going to go into a conversation about who sort of the sides are in this conversation about the Second Amendment in the United States. I think Gunfight discusses a lot who the different sort of contending groups are. There's the gun nuts and gun grabbers chapters, which I think provide a really, really interesting overview of how truly how divided we are and how there's extremes on both sides. What I'm curious about is, historically speaking, who have been these prominent stakeholders in the debate around the Second Amendment? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of prominent stakeholders in the debate over the Second Amendment because guns are pervasive in American society and affect so many different people. Obviously, on the pro-gun side, the NRA and its allies in the Republican Party have really been profound participants in the debate. The NRA, although historically supported gun safety regulation, really transformed in the 1970s to become the extremist pro-gun organization that we know now that opposes gun safety laws at every turn. The NRA has become a key part of the Republican Party coalition and has been for the last 30 years. And as a result, the Republican Party has really solidified around the idea that we don't need more gun safety laws. And in fact, we need to expand gun rights and strike down some of the existing gun safety laws. You know, in terms of gun safety organizations, well, there are, of course, advocates and organizations like the Brady Organization, the Giffords Organization, Every Town for Gun Safety. These are important organizations and advocacy groups that are working in this space. They're also supported by grassroots organizations like Moms Demand Action and others that provide a lot of intellectual and uh, political support for the gun safety movement. We should also note that on the pro-gun side, one of the reasons why pro-gun advocates have been so effective is because for many in America, guns are not just a political issue. They're a recreational activity. They're a lifestyle. Some people use their guns the way, I don't know, the way my dad uses his golf clubs. He likes to go out on the weekend and play with them. And a lot of people go to the gun range and shoot their guns and, or they go hunting. I think that's one of the things, the sort of the hidden things in the gun debate today, why gun advocates are a little bit more successful than gun safety advocates. For gun safety advocates, it's a political issue. And for some of them, of course, it's an emotional and personal issue because they've been affected by gun violence. But for gun rights advocates, so many of them really are gun enthusiasts, and they have the same kinds of ability to communicate, and they follow the same... Twitter feeds and read the same magazines and use the same websites. And as a result, they're more of a cohesive community that can share information and get politically mobilized a little bit easier, I think, than the gun safety supporters. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm from Missouri, and I certainly have experienced a lot of interaction with those two groups. You mentioned the NRA and how they've really had a bit of an evolution to what they are today. Do you think that you could Tell us a little bit more about that evolution and how they've moved from supporting gun control legislation to maybe being the no gun control lobbying group they are today. Yeah, well, the National Rifle Association was not always the diehard, no compromises opponent of gun control that we know today. The NRA was founded after the Civil War, ironically, perhaps by a reporter for a newspaper today that's not known for its support of gun rights, the New York Times. 
And the reason it was formed was because the two men behind it thought that uh, Northerners had been poor soldiers in the Civil War, despite having won it, because they were not really well trained to arms. Whereas Southerners, even though they were well outmanned and did not have the resources really to compete with the North, were able to draw out the war because they were so well trained to arms. And the NRA was founded to help train people, be good marksmen and be trained with arms in the event that war should break out, Americans would be capable of defending themselves. In the 1920s and the 1930s, the NRA was really at the forefront of the gun safety movement, drafting restrictive gun safety laws and promoting them in state after state. When Congress was considering the first major federal gun control law in the 1930s, the president of the NRA was asked before Congress whether the proposed law violated the Second Amendment. And I think from the perspective of today, his reply back then is nothing short of astounding. He said, and I can quote him here because I remember the quote, I have not given it any study from that point of view. So the head of the NRA hadn't even thought about whether the most sweeping federal gun law in American history violated the Second Amendment or touched upon the Second Amendment. And that's in part because before the 1960s, the NRA's publications rarely mentioned the Second Amendment at all. It wasn't really part of the understanding of gun policy at the time. It wasn't really until the NRA was transformed in the 1970s that the Second Amendment became the organization's heart and soul. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, it makes you really wonder what happened in the 70s to create such a drastic shift. I think that a really large part of Gunfight that I noticed while I was reading it is using the D.C. v. Heller case to determine the true meaning of the Second Amendment, right? It explores a lot of the historical background and using those facts to determine, you know, whether it guarantees an individual right to bear arms, how that's related to the militia. And I'm wondering, what conclusion does gunfight or do you come to on this topic? Does it agree with the result of D.C. v. Heller that it does guarantee the right, the individual right to bear arms? Well, you know, I think that for all the heated debate about the Second Amendment, one of the things that surprised me when I was doing my research for gunfight was that regardless of what the framers thought about the meaning of the Second Amendment, Americans have long had the right to bear arms, an individual right to bear arms. Each one of our 50 states has its own state constitution, and 43 of the 50 states clearly protect an individual's right to have guns for personal self-defense in their state constitutions. So even without the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms would be one of our oldest, most well-established rights. And I also discovered that uh, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, that's the one that guarantees equal protection of the laws. And you know, it was adopted right after the Civil War to guarantee equal rights for the formerly enslaved people. Well, when that was added to the Constitution, the framers of the 14th Amendment argued that one of the reasons it was needed was to protect the ability of newly freed African Americans to have guns to protect themselves against the KKK and other white racists that were bent on returning them to slavery. So there's ways in which our constitutional tradition protects the right to bear arms, even outside of the Second Amendment. Now, with regards to the Second Amendment itself, I don't believe the court necessarily got it right by saying that the Second Amendment was intended to protect an individual right to bear arms without regard to the militia. The militia is written right there into the amendment of the Constitution. 
But I also don't think that any of our constitutional rights really are limited to how the founders thought about them in 1790s. Certainly, we wouldn't want to treat all our rights in that same way. Well, some might, but I don't think that's the right way to think about constitutional interpretation. And Americans have really very vocally and very powerfully argued and interpreted the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right for many, many decades. And as a result, I think that the court's decision in Heller is certainly defensible. I want to circle back to our conversation about the sides of contention around the Second Amendment. When we were discussing who the prominent stakeholders have been, there's the or there's the gun advocacy side, and then there's the more gun safety law advocacy side, gun control advocacy, however you want to word it. In Gunfight, you talk about symbolism a few times. You mention the concept of symbolism over substance. Could you explain what you mean by symbolism over substance? Well, I think we see sometimes lawmakers and advocates pushing for symbolic laws that don't actually have any substantive on-the-ground effect, and that can be problematic. I mentioned earlier banning high-capacity magazines. Again, I think this is a very well-intentioned reform, but in places that have banned high-capacity magazines, there's no evidence that anyone's given them up or that people are selling them en masse or throwing them away. I'm sure some people are doing that and don't want to violate the law. But in fact, you get the law on the books, but it doesn't really change much on the ground. Anyone who's got a high-capacity magazine before the ban went into effect probably still has it today. So do you think that symbolism over substance style legislation and advocacy is always worthless or are there moments in which it truly can be helpful? And if so, how? Oh, I mean, I think this gets to much broader issues than gun politics, but sometimes symbolic laws can have a purpose. They can serve to unite a community. They can serve to express a community's values. What's somewhat problematic is right now is in America, we can't really agree on what values we should be endorsing. And symbols become one more mechanism that divide Americans rather than unite Americans. So I don't know that I would say that categorically we should never have laws that are pursued for symbolic reasons, but we should at least recognize that when we do have laws that are pursued for symbolic reasons, that if there are substantive problems we really want to solve, that those symbolic laws probably not going to do the work that we hope. I want to move on to talking about where we are today. Gunfight was published over a decade ago, but I think as we've seen in our discussion today that the themes are still clearly extremely relevant. After doing a little bit of my own research, because I started to notice that it just felt like there was a mass shooting every week, I was really curious to see if we've actually had a rise. And I found that according to the Gun Violence Archive, which is an independent data collection group that publishes gun violence statistics. I noticed that from 2014 to 2021, the U.S. has seen roughly a 150% increase in mass shootings. Does this historic level of mass shootings in the time since you wrote Gunfight make you reconsider any of your conclusions in the book or any, I don't know, further provide any further context for what you wrote at the time? 
Sure. One of the unfortunate things about being a scholar when you write a book is that you write a book and then you sit, put it out and it gets published. And of course, you keep thinking about the issues. And just like on any other issue that you think about, often you get more information, you think about things a little differently, you wish you had done things a little bit differently. So certainly mass shootings were not as big a topic when I wrote Gunfight as they are today. And I wish I had done more in Gunfight to talk about mass shootings and the history of mass shootings. One of the reasons why I think we have seen this sort of stark increase of mass shootings is what's known by behavioral psychologists as the availability heuristic, which is sometimes that people feel like if they see something on the news, then it's more likely to occur. Like if you see a plane crash, you think that plane crashes are much more likely to occur than they really are likely to occur because this evidence has been presented to you and you think about it in those ways. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that sort of a, a pathological version of that effect in with regards to people who want to kill other people, that as other mass shootings get a lot of attention, the next person who wants to make a name for themselves, who wants to hurt others, sees a mass shooting as a reasonable option to go ahead and do that as how they should make their name or make their statement or make their mark on society. Of course, there's other societies that have guns and don't have mass shootings like we do. They could, right? There's nothing stopping them from having mass shootings, but they don't. It's not a common thing in their society. And similarly, there have been other societies where they've had a lot of suicide bombers. And America doesn't have too many suicide bombers. Very rare here. It's just something that people don't feel is part of the range of options for them, even though, of course, it is. And so I think we're right now in kind of a cycle where mass shooters see mass shootings as ways to make headlines. So they choose that as the way to make headlines. Whereas maybe those same people would not be choosing to be mass shooters had they not seen other mass shooters get so many big headlines. But that's just my hypothesis anyway. So my last question for you today is, do you have anything else that you would like to add to our conversation today so that we can better understand your research and scholarship? Well, I mean, I do think that we are entering into a period where the history surrounding gun safety laws is going to be increasingly important at the Supreme Court. And I think it's important for scholars on both sides of this issue to delve more deeply into the history and to recover that history. So one way and this might manifest itself is, is that the, the area of gun policy and uh, in research about the right to bear arms has been completely dominated by the pro-gun side of the equation. They were the ones who were interested to look into the history of guns, and so they've done so. But we haven't had as many scholars working on the pro-safety, pro-regulation side of this issue. So I think it's an area where it's important to see more research from both sides so that we have a better understanding really of what that history and tradition of gun laws was and get a better sense of maybe how we can move forward in an effective way. We do have a lot of guns in America. They're not going anywhere. There's more guns than there are people in America at this point. The key is not going to be coming up with some sort of utopian understanding or utopian vision in which all of these guns disappear or that all of our gun violence problems disappear. Rather, it's understanding that we have to figure out a way to manage an armed society where we can reduce as much as we can 
the downsides of that armed society, reduce the incidence of suicide, reduce the incidence of mass shootings, reduce the incidence of criminal misuse of firearms without being utopian about it. And so I think that having that sort of sense of realism would be a good basis for moving forward. Professor Winkler, thank you so much for joining us today on Untextbooked. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. What do you hope someone would learn from this conversation? I would hope that someone would learn that this conversation and this topic is really more complicated than I think we all think it is. History has shown us that prohibition never works in the United States. It didn't work with alcohol. It doesn't work with narcotics. And as my conversation with Professor Winkler demonstrated, it would never work with guns. The solution, as stereotypical as it may sound, is to find a common ground. Using this historical context that limits violence, halts mass shootings, and ends the use of gun control as a way of perpetuating racism in the United States. While such common ground may feel unreachable right now, this conversation has shown us that it is essential that we find it so that we can manage the gun violence epidemic before it causes more pain. Thank you for sharing that, Ellie. Our producer, Ellie Carver-Horner, is a sophomore at Barnard College of Columbia University. Adam Winkler is a professor of law at UCLA and one of the most cited law professors in American courts today. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam Winkler. That's A-D-A-M-W-I-N-K-L-E-R. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we ask, do prisons actually keep us safe? The reason for mass incarceration is racialized control. When slavery was abolished, all of a sudden, all of these free Black people that you could no longer exploit for free labor became surplus. So what did the state do with them? They devised ways in which to corral them back into unpaid, exploitative, dehumanizing labor. And in this way, mass incarceration has that same function. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People. Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>